Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. From Africa to Asia and even parts of Europe, the legacy of Arab cuisine reaches far beyond the Middle East. In her new book, The Arabesque Table, writer and cookbook author Reem Cassis pulls together the vast diaspora of Arab cuisine, using recipes to build a foundation for the cooking and culture of the Arab world. You can advance. You can move forward. You can adapt dishes to suit your lifestyle. But as long as you recognize the past that it comes from, then at least you're doing it justice and you're not letting it get lost in all the noise. Also coming up, we make a recipe for pasta with a tomato, garlic, and basil sauce that still tastes fresh without fresh tomatoes. And we explore what people in the past thought food would look like in the future. But first, it's my interview with Foley artist Marco Costanzo about the surprising role food plays in movies. Marco, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's just define the term Foley. How did the name come about, and what is it? There was a, um, a sound man, and uh, his name was Jack Foley. He was the 
guy at Warner Brothers that would look at a picture and throw some sound on it, but he did it much differently than the way it is now. He would look at a reel and then get all the props ready and sort of do things almost live. Hmm. People started saying, hey, you know, let's get Foley in here. Let's get him over here to do this job. And once that became part of the Hollywood thing, Foley was basically a hidden art that was added in. And for many years, not a lot of people knew about it. So just so I understand it, so it, it, when you're making a movie, you're laying over ambient noise or ambient noise is cut out of the initial recording? Any sound that a director wants to hear, Foley probably did something to it. I'm not speaking of winds and, and car buys and, and people talking. I'm talking about just physical actions that are going on on screen. So all these little embellishments we're putting in there so that when someone's walking and they have a pair of high heels on and they go over and they sit on a leather couch and as they they fall into the seat you hear the creak of their body sliding down the seat and when it comes to the final mix a director says how come i don't hear that butt down on the couch i mean i want to hear this couch laboring under <laughs> under the weight once we know what the personality of that sound has to be then we, they, we create it, uh, you know, specifically for what we see on screen. In other words, the way in which you get the sound can be totally unexpected. And Absolutely. Someone who's not a Foley would have no idea to do it. Yeah. Uh, food is used a lot. So what foods are commonly used to create sounds? You wouldn't normally think uh, of using them. The things that I keep in my uh, refrigerator and stocked are lettuce, celery, apples, pastas, um, coconut, now, one of the things you said, and this is so disappointing to me, because I love Monty Python, that coconut <laughs> shells are, are not used for horses galloping, which is so, it's so disappointing. So how do you get that sound? Um, okay, you know what? I may have been misquoted on that. Coconuts are used all the time. Oh, good. But I generally don't like the sound of them. Uh, they sound a little comical. I mean, if you ever really listen to a horse, it has nothing to do with a coconut. But the thing is, everyone has grown up with that sound, so it, it becomes our impression of a horse's sound. Right. I read that Hitchcock couldn't show graphic images, you know, like Psycho, right? So they cut away from the action, and the sound would tell the story. Oh, gosh, yeah. You know what? The, the one I usually uh, bring out is with Hannibal Lecter when he... Um, is in a cage and they're holding him for a little while and there's one guard who's sort of, uh, you know, palling up to him. And before you know it, Hannibal's on top of him. He, he's about to bite his face off and you don't see anything other than a face coming at you, right? So all these things happen off camera. And then we start doing some just little plop, plop, plop sounds. Then when the mixers get a hold of it, they'll take that apple bite along with the shirt tear on top of the, the celery crunch. Though that, that little bit of sound of the where you're breaking through, right. it gets very graphic. And, um, and it, it certainly uh, contributes to some of my nightmares. <laughs> so. <laughs> so let's play that clip here. This is from Silence of the Lambs. Uh, but just a warning, this audio might be a little too intense for young or sensitive listeners. <laughs> so you worked on Big Night, uh, Julie and Julia, Goodfellas, The Big Lebowski. But in The Big Lebowski, Goodman cracks the back, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and how, do, how did you do that? I, I know I used celery on that, but I probably used some jumbo shells. <laughs> uh, you know, like, like Ronzoni. You know, they're almost the size of your fist. So you put two or three of those in your hand and you crunch. All of a sudden you're getting multiple cluck, 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 cluck. Yeah. So we then muffle those sounds. So it sounds like it's coming through a body. So let's play that scene from The Big Lebowski. Come on. Get away Come from on. me. Oh, crazy. Put him down, man. Yeah, I'll put him down, dude. Well, so Marco, okay, let's, let's try some Foley right here and now. I think you have some sounds you can do for us live. So where do we start? 
All right. Uh, I'm going to start by giving you a little story. I'm over at the gym. Okay. Right? And I'm reaching my arms way in the air, right? And I'm, and I'm twisting my body to the right and to the left. And now I'm about to touch my toes. <laughs> that sounds like me touching my toes. Exactly. Um, uh, <laughs> is this the old celery or vegetable thing you're doing? This is the celery, right. and I wrapped it in cloth so it wouldn't be as bright. You know, the, the more pieces of celery you put in, the more individual hits you get. And uh, especially with celery, you need to be uh, really cold. Let's do, um, let's do another one. That was fun. All right. Here we go. <laughs> it, it sounds like, uh, I don't know, some dystopian monster eating something weird. <laughs> um, that was cornstarch in its box, and I've used that as a demo for footsteps in snow. So now that huh. you know what I'm doing, see huh. if you hear that. Okay. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Let's do a third one. All right. So we're in a tent and uh, uh, it's starting to rain a little bit. It's windy. The rain isn't coming down steady. It's coming down in sort of sheets and waves. That sounded all like drops on a tent. Yeah, it did. Yeah. So what was it? Just iceberg lettuce. So what I'm doing is I'm just pressing down and rolling the lettuce on the table. But in rolling it, I wanted to create those waves of water that just sort of, <laughs> right? So that's just a head of lettuce being rolled on a table. So there's some cases, like in Titanic, I read that Rose's hair was supposedly frozen to that piece of wood she was floating on, and that was actually lettuce, frozen lettuce being peeled away. Are, are there movies you've worked on We had a really difficult problem to solve, and you solved it in an interesting way? How about the lava? In um, Ice Age, right, there's uh, two of the animals were in a tar pit. They were taking, a, you know, it was like a jacuzzi or something. And they wanted this thick, bubbling lava. And we went out and we bought gallons of syrup so that I could get my hands in there and really muck it up. <laughs> and it made zero sound. We wound up putting flour and water in, almost like a batter. So with that thickness, I was able to get a blup, like a, a, a slower action <laughs> glug. That's a, that's a professional term. Right? Well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, we got a lot of splits and splats, and we want to splash over there. And, uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, hey. Hi, Manny. What's the matter with you? Excuse me, ladies. You just keep marinating, and I'll be right back. So when you go to the supermarket, it's a different kind of shopping trip than when I go to the supermarket. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I, you know, I, I feel up my food all the time. You know, through the packaging, I, I'll bounce it around. I'm listening for little pieces, big pieces, something that I might be able to utilize. And generally, when it comes to vegetables and stuff, for whatever reason, I like organic stuff because it just some, the lettuce is a little crisper. Hmm. You know, it's just, I don't know. Maybe it's my, uh, it's in my head. <laughs> you should do an ad for the organic food industry. Well, you know. <laughs> it's a little crisper. Marco, thank you so much. Now I know what to do with the lettuce other than eating it. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. That was Foley artist Marco Costanza. Now it's time for my co-host Sarah Moltenai to answer some of your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101. She's also the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television. Sarah, how are you? I'm good, Chris. You know, you and I remember the age of the great French restaurant in New York. You actually worked at one. I'm getting very nostalgic for the classic French restaurant. They're few and far between. There's just something about the service and the menu and the whole experience that I I still love. Yeah, I miss it. Oh, gosh. But if I had my choice between a classic, more haute cuisine French versus a bistro with more yeah. sort of casual food, I'd take the bistro every day. Yeah, me too. But I still like the silly, expensive white tablecloth experience. Fancy stuff where they wait a, with, on you. With a little red lamps in the middle. You know? And you feel very special. Yes, I agree. And you have to order the souffle ahead of time. I mean, it's it's so 60s, I guess, or 50s, but I still love that. You know, you feel pampered. Yeah. And we like that, besides the good food. 
We do like that. All right, let's take some calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Abby in Norwood, Colorado. Abby, how can we help you today? I baked uh, the chocolate chocolate chip cookies, mm-hmm. which were awesome. But the first question I have is, so I didn't have semi-sweet chips. I had dark chocolate chips. So I used those, cut the sugar, blah, da, da, da. And as I was doing it, I can't remember if it called for one or two eggs, but we're at uh, 7,000 feet here. And um, I thought, should I add another egg? And I should have added another egg. And my question is, what is the role of eggs anyway? It's different at a higher altitude. But, I mean, in general, the yolk of the egg provides, you know, moisture and fat, and the white provides structure. You know, at altitude, there's other things, higher altitude, there's other things going on, you know, like the ratio of dry ingredients to wet ingredients, and eggs would be considered a wet ingredient there, as well as what else they bring to the mix. What I always recommend, because this is really a very specialty area, is baking at high altitude, is this book by an old colleague of mine, Susan Purdy, and I highly recommend you get it. It's called Pie in the Sky. Uh-huh. Pie, P-I-E? P.I.E. in the sky. (laughs) She just has terrific advice for all baking and how you need to adjust. Yeah, I've lived here a long time, and so um, I always cut the salt a little bit anyway. I always cut sugar a little bit anyway. I generally add an extra egg, but for baking soda and baking powder, I generally, I've been increasing the amount, and it hasn't been affecting what I would guess would be the rise in, like, cookies and things. And you're sure that both your baking powder and baking soda are fresh? What do you mean by fresh? Ooh, they have an expiration. If you combine baking soda with acid, it should bubble immediately. If you combine baking powder with warm water, it should bubble immediately. They're both within the year. Oh, well, they should be fine. Chris, do you have any thoughts about all of this? In general, probably use lower baking temperatures, more liquid because things dry out, especially 7,000 feet. That's way up there. And eggs, you know, eggs are about emulsification. So egg yolk in particular will combine or connect fat and liquid together. And that's great for a cake or a cookie. So I would agree with you. Add an extra egg is probably a good idea. Yeah, because they were a little crumbly, mostly because I, whoops, the chocolate chips fell over a little bit extra. And so did the nuts. Oh, and then I used dried cherries, which I think, yeah, it was dried cherries in it. Oh, God, were they good. I would add an extra egg, yes. This is such an honor to talk with you, and really thank you for taking my call. Take care. Thank you both. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you're having trouble in the kitchen, give us a ring anytime. Our number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843 or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Connie from California. How can we help you today? Well, I would like to make caramels, but, you know, I hear a lot of bad things about corn syrup. So is there a substitute for corn syrup? All the recipes I've seen have corn syrup. I think there must be one that uses like powdered sugar or something like that. But all the ones I've seen use corn syrup, Sarah. Well, yeah, but I have to ask a question. Is it corn syrup you're concerned about or high fructose corn syrup? Because they're not the same thing. Oh, well, that I didn't know. So I guess it's the high fructose. Yeah. So actually, you don't have to worry. You can be happy and make caramels (laughs) with a normal thing which is corn syrup. It's there for a reason. It keeps the sugar from crystallizing. Oh, okay. Okay, so I just have to look for regular corn syrup. Not Right. Will it say high fructose corn syrup on it? Nope. It will say corn syrup because it's plain old corn syrup. You might want to Google powdered sugar soft caramel and just see if there is, because that's very different than regular sugar. That might work if you're still concerned about corn syrup and see if you can find a recipe for that. But that's the only other substitute I can think of that would work. I think you can use other sugar, you know, invert sugars like honey or molasses or maple syrup or golden syrup. But they will change the sort of the profile of caramel. And what we like about caramel, I think, is that it tastes like caramel. (laughs) Right, right. That's why I would, you know, 
Although powdered sugar, I don't know, Chris, why would that work? I'm interested. So it doesn't have the crystals, I think, the regular oh, sugar Oh, so you has. use all powdered sugars, what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, uh, or golden syrup. You see a lot of British recipes, too. Yeah, golden syrup. But I think the easiest, I think Sarah's right, just not high fructose corn syrup. Okay, I guess I assumed it was all high fructose. So no, no, I know. It's fine. So there you go. Okay, can I ask one more question in relation? Sure. Do you absolutely need a candy thermometer to make it, or can I use my thermopen? I prefer using my thermopen. I think it's pretty accurate. This Very is the accurate. one with a six-inch probe. I find that it reacts much more quickly than a candy thermometer, which I think is not that accurate because it takes time for the temperature to settle. Exactly. The only other thing I suggest is to tilt the pan away from you and stir the mixture with the probe with a the thermopen just so you get an accurate reading because I do find when you're making sugar syrups, it's where you put the probe because the thermopen picks up the temperature right at the tip. Oh, okay. Exactly where the probe is, you can get five degrees of difference, you know, which it makes a difference with this. So tip the pan away from you, stir it a little bit with a probe, and then make sure you take a few readings to sort of average them out. Okay. Well, all right. Well, all thanks right. for calling. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, I'm chatting with cookbook author Reem Cassis. That's right up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, Man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie. Capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like, just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. 
we are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Jay Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Palestinian writer and cookbook author Reem Cassis about her latest book, The Arabesque Table. Reem, welcome back to Milk Street. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be back. Yeah, it's a pleasure having you here. Uh, your first book was called The Palestinian Table, a book I love. Mm-hmm. Your new book is called Arabesque. What's the difference between the Palestinian table right. and the Arab table? So the first one was a very personal book that narrated my family's history, stories, their recipes, and through it, you got a glimpse of what a Palestinian kitchen looks like. This new book, it takes a step back, and it is not any specific national cuisine, but rather it's what a modern Arab kitchen looks like today, but it is traced throughout history. So the idea was to understand what it is that we eat today and how it's evolved into what it is. We need to understand the history and the journey that has gotten us to this point. So in that sense, it's a much wider angle than the first one and a much broader book as well. Is the Palestinian table, not the book, but the actual food, Mm -hmm. a subset of the Arab table? Absolutely, yes. I mean, if you go back as far as I did in researching this book, you see that the earliest cookbooks on record are actually Arab cookbooks. Uh, And the whole idea of national cuisine is actually a relatively recent construct. Uh, It didn't arise until the late 18th, early 19th century, uh, following the French Revolution. So Palestinian cuisine is definitely a subset of Arab cuisine, uh, but its identification as such is a more recent phenomenon. Could you just follow up on that? I, I did note that in your book that mm-hmm. uh, national cuisine is, is relatively modern. But, but national cuisines don't really make sense on some level because of all the different cultures and the groups and the immigration mm-hmm. over time, right? Right, 100%. I mean, I'm not trying to discount the idea of national cuisine by any stretch of the imagination. It is a very real thing that exists now that is very important to our collective identity. But even today, if you look at Palestinian cuisine, if you look at Lebanese, Syrian, Chinese, any cuisine that you want, you will notice it's much more regional than it is national. I mean, even within Palestine, you remember on our trip, you looked at the food in the Galilee, and if you were to go to Jerusalem or to the south, you would notice, yes, there are similarities because we share a geography and a landscape and a history, but you do notice differences. And these differences can arise from religion. They can arise from locale, whether you're a city or countryside. So food at its core is a regional artifact. It's much more closely tied to your religion, your language, your socioeconomic status than it is to the idea of a nation. But it is also a way around which to develop a national identity. And you see this with many countries. So let's just talk about the Middle East for a second. Mm -hmm. So when people talk about the Middle East, what do they mean? And, and, And you said in your book, it was so interesting, you said, it came into use in the early 20th century as a European mm-hmm. perception of a region between Western Europe mm-hmm. and the British colony of India in the East. So it was the Middle East. So it's funny you ask that question because it was something you asked me that triggered that entire line of research and that ended up making the book, The Arabesque Table. Uh, <laughs> but basically, <laughs> it's a Whoops. lot of weight on your shoulders, Chris. <laughs> thanks, thanks a lot. <laughs> uh, but basically, people... And this is a problem with the social sciences in general. This isn't just an issue with cooking. Terminology is not 
completely agreed upon. And different terms can mean different things depending on whose perspective you're taking. So there are a lot of people in the cooking world who will use the term Middle Eastern cuisine because it's essentially evocative. You understand what it means. It implies something to you. But is it accurate? Not exactly, because people are calling preserved lemon and chicken tagines Middle Eastern food. But if you look at it technically, it's North African. And then if you look geographically at Cyprus and Greece and Turkey, well, they're also on some level part of the Middle East. So if you start to trace the history of the food, you realize the common thread running through the cuisine that I'm talking about is the fact that it is all Arab food. Whether it is inspired by North African ingredients or by Levantine ingredients or by techniques from the Gulf, Arab is the unifying factor. And so that's what I wanted to get across in the book, that this is not just a random compilation of quote-unquote Middle Eastern recipes. To the contrary, it is you know, recipes that are there for a specific reason. There's a history behind them, and that history can be traced back to very early cookbooks on record. So to me, the Middle East, if I have to use that term, I'm generally thinking in the back of my head uh, of the Arab countries. Let's talk about ingredients. Um, mm -hmm. Zatar, you, you recently reposted or posted on social a video of some oh, grandmothers, grandmothers tasting, yes. I've forgotten what store it was from, uh, some big box stores, Zatar. Mm -hmm. Could you just talk about that? It was hilarious. So it's funny, za'atar for us, and you probably saw this when you were there, it's a plant. It's actually called za'atar. You forage for it in the wild. Some people try to plant it. It never tastes the same. And what people refer to in the West as za'atar is the condiment that we make with that plant. Right. And that condiment is supposed to include the dried za'atar leaves and sesame seeds and salt and sumat and nothing else whatsoever. Uh in the West, it's people sometimes will tell you, oh yeah, za'atar is thyme, or za'atar is a mixture of thyme and oregano and this and that. It's actually a plant from the oregano family. Uh, if you look at its scientific name, and I don't want to butcher this, but it's something like oreganum cerium. It's native to this region, the Levant. Uh, so that video you're referring to, they gave the za'atar to a bunch of grandmothers and said, taste it. What does it taste like? And I just found it so funny because, first of all, they're like, what? Why are you serving it in a spice-sized jar, for starters? Because we go through, you know, jars and jars of it on a regular basis. And then they'll take a bite and they'll think, what is this? It doesn't taste like za'atar. And then one of them said, nah, it's not bad. And then she actually swallows it. And she's like, oh, my God, this is not za'atar. It's so bitter. <laughs> I just found it endearing that, you know, it's, it's entering Western cuisine. At the same time, it's not exactly the za'atar that we recognize. So nigella seeds, uh, mm -hmm. I think the quote is, it cures everything except death. Right. <laughs> um, what are they? How to use them? What do they taste like? So we use it to just flavor certain dishes. You'll see it a lot in pastries. Uh, you'll see it a lot in sweets and desserts. There's a cake where you actually grind a lot of nigella seed. It looks like sesame for anyone who doesn't know what nigella seed is. It looks exactly like black sesame seeds, but the taste is much more pungent. Uh, and people sometimes might confuse it with black cumin. It is not that. It is um, its own specific seed. Uh, and the recipe I was referring to, they grind it into a paste like tahina, but made out of the nigella seed. And then they mix it with flour and semolina and turn it into this bar-like dessert. It's a very strong flavor, Chris. So for a lot of people who have not been exposed to it, it could be a love it or hate it ingredient. So if you're starting out with it, I would say use it in small portions. But it is definitely a healthy thing to be eating. Um, here's one that really got me, which sounds great, but I think most people probably have never made it. Garlic yogurt spaghetti with pine nuts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's like yeah. a lazy meal. That's when you really don't want to cook and your kids come home from school <laughs> and you're like, oh, my God, what am I going to feed them? So cooked yogurt is very predominant in Arab cuisine, but it's very difficult to do. You have to sit at the stove and stir it to make sure it doesn't um, split so here, it's you just warm it through, you have the garlic and you add the spaghetti to it, and it's a very creamy pasta, but it might shock people who are expecting something that tastes like an Alfredo sauce. It is a very sour dish, very pungent with the garlic, but super light, and kids love it. I mean, my kids, you've met them. They're picky. They like it. Let's talk about eggplant. I mean, that's a key ingredient. Um, mm -hmm. Can anyone just throw a few eggplants in a very hot oven for an hour, 
slit them a couple times first and then scoop them out and make a million things out of it? I mean, would you just improvise with eggplants that way? Oh, 100%. Whenever we grill outside and the embers are dying down, I will bring out some eggplants, roast them there, scoop it out and just freeze the flesh and you have it at a minute's notice and you can make a million things with it. But I don't know if you know this, Chris, people used to hate eggplant in the air world. They used to say it has the color of a scorpion's abdomen and it tastes like it's sting. <laughs> that's really, <laughs> that's some great ad copy for eggplant. Uh, one of the most compelling photos in the book is just gorgeous. An hibiscus rose tart mm. based on a sort of mm-hmm. custard base. Could you talk about that? Because it is pretty stunning. So this cake, I don't know where I came up with the idea of mixing these different components together, but mhalabiya was a thickened milk pudding, which dates back to the Middle Ages. For me, it's always been a little bit, it's too soft, right? I'm not a pudding person. Like, I want texture. I want crunch. I love cheesecakes, but sometimes they're too heavy. So I decided to try it out once uh, with just the mhalabiya with like a crunchy base, But then you end up with something that's too sweet and you want an acidic thing to break it apart. And that's where the hibiscus came in. So what we ended up with and what came into the book was a tart that is very similar to a cheesecake crust. And set in it is this mhalabiya pudding, which is super easy because unlike cheesecake, you don't need to bake it. You just cook it very quickly on the stove. And once it sets, you add this uh, hibiscus. It's it's basically hibiscus tea that's thickened with cornstarch. So again, super easy. You put it on top. And I guess it's a case of where it's more than the sum of its parts. It's a lot of simple things put together, but it's impressive to look at. And the taste is is refreshing. It's sweet. It's a combination of textures. And that mixture is what I like. It's what keeps you coming back for more. It's not like uniform, neither in taste nor in texture nor in looks for that matter. So you're a good example of uh, someone with roots, obviously, one place uh, and now here most of the time. For you, what's the intersection between your past, uh, that is the, the, the cooking you grew up with, mm. and now you have two young girls, you know, one of whom eats sushi and bacon? <laughs> I mean, you, you obviously have to figure out some middle path right. where all these things get stirred up together. So w- what's that melting pot in your family? Look, it's something I struggle with every day. On the one hand, I want to hold on to my roots. I don't want to lose them. I don't want my daughters to not know them because I find them so, they're valuable, but they're also very interesting. And if we don't preserve these things, they're going to be lost in generations going forward. And so the way I try to reconcile it is, you know, if my kids like something that's not Arabic food, of course, we're going to make it, we're going to eat it. But then The only way to preserve the past is to document it. And in a way, that's what I was trying to do with this book is to show you can advance, you can move forward, you can adapt dishes to suit your lifestyle. But as long as you recognize the past that it comes from, then at least you're doing it justice and you're not letting it get lost in all the noise. So my daughters know about the different foods that we, you know, the other day we were having dinner and she goes, I want Cido Philippe, which is my father, her grandfather, his olives, because my parents still send their olives to us. And we were out of them, so I gave her a different olive, and she tasted it, and she goes, that's not Cido Philippe's olives. They don't taste the same. Hmm. And I thought, oh, wow, okay, so I'm doing something right. Like, they can tell the difference. Hmm. And, you know, we have a bowl of za'atar and a bowl of olive oil on our table at all times. So if they don't like what we're eating or they're hungry for a snack, they'll have something that is so traditional to us. But on the weekends, they want sushi, we get sushi. Reem, it's been uh, just a great pleasure having you back here on Milk Street. Thanks so much. Thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure for me, too. That was Reem Cassis. Her new book is The Arabesque Table, Contemporary Recipes from the Arab World. Reem Cassis grew up in Jerusalem. I'm from New England. Her diet included maklube and maftoul and frike. I was raised on pot roast, baked potatoes, and, of course, anadama bread. But we agree that the notion of national cuisines is at best dated, and maybe at worst, it's colonial. How many different cuisines exist in India or the Philippines? To say nothing of China or Japan or Russia or Mexico, the list goes on. You know, a yellow mole in Oaxaca bears no resemblance to one in the town of Teotitlan, just 20 miles away. So the world is not really a collection of countries. Maybe it's an intricately woven pattern 
of cultures and languages and traditions that defy borders. And that's why the history of food tells us so much more than the history of nations. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, pasta with tomato, garlic, and basil. Lynn, how are you? I'm good, Chris. You know, a lot of us, all of us, have spent a lot of time at home of late. (laughs) And so we're doing a lot of cooking out of the pantry and trying to figure out how to make great things with (laughs) the same things that have been stirring your face for nine months. (laughs) So one of those things, of course, is tomato paste. And um, we thought about, can you make a pasta sauce, a tomato sauce, using tomato paste and not canned tomatoes if you didn't have any canned tomatoes? And the answer is, I think, a resounding yes, right? It is. This is sort of the ultimate pantry recipe, right? This is taking simple ingredients that you have already and using some flavor-boosting techniques to really give you something that turns out quite amazing. So you have tomato paste. Uh, now, we all know that it's full of umami, right? It's, That's right. It's got a lot of flavor. Is this where you start you know, sautéing this in a pan? Is that how you start? So we start with a little bit of sliced garlic. That gets cooked in the pan just until it's browned. We add a little bit of dried basil here, and you're going to see basil again a couple other times. We're layering the basil. And then we add our tomato paste along with a Fresno chili and a little bit of fresh basil. We cook the tomato paste down a lot. It's going to get stuck to the bottom of the pan. It's going to turn really sort of brick red, but that's going to really concentrate the flavor, make it really savory, and really, really accentuate those umami elements of tomato paste. So the rest of it's business as usual, slightly undercook the pasta, put it in the skillet, add some cooking water to bind the sauce? Exactly. So this is a recipe where you actually kind of want to have your pasta already cooked before you start the sauce because the sauce comes together so quickly. And we're actually using the pasta water not just to loosen the sauce, but to kind of make the sauce here. Hmm. So you've got that tomato paste kind of stuck on the bottom. We add some of the pasta water. That loosens up all of that flavor on the bottom. Then we add our pasta and finish cooking it right in the sauce. So it has a ton of flavor in the pasta and not just in the sauce. So pasta with tomato, garlic, and basil, except it's tomato paste, which uh, is the secret ingredient. Thank you so much, Lynn. You're welcome. You can get this recipe for pasta with tomato, garlic, and basil at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, journalist Bianca Bosker tells us what people 80 years ago thought food would look like today. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. 
It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Hope calling from Philadelphia, PA. So how can we help you in the kitchen? Well, I've made my own starter. It's got all the right signs from what I'm reading on food blogs and everything. It's rising within a few hours of feeding it. It's looking really bubbly. It's passing the float test. But for some reason, my loaves are just kind of dense. The scores aren't really opening up and the dough isn't really rising all that much and it's not looking kind of like that smooth pretty dough that I'm seeing in the videos it's kind of just looking wet and craggly so the starter's in the fridge and then when you want to make a loaf of bread what do you do I get the first feed right after out of the fridge and then another 24 hours I feed it again and then a few hours after that I try to bake with it is it really bubbly and looking active when you start to use it the starter oh yeah it goes up like almost triple the size What's the texture of that dough like as you're kneading the dough? Well, the two recipes I've tried have been no knead, and then I tried like a stretch and fold. So when it's with the no kneads, you know, I'm mixing it. It's a little bit wet, you know, a little shaggy. What kind of flours? You have a mix of flours in this recipe? I feed it with all purpose just because it's uh, less expensive. But then all the recipes I'm using, I think, are all bread flour. I'm going to ask you now, like, when's your birthday? What's your favorite car? What's, what's your favorite You're trying color? Trying to buy yourself some yeah. time there. Here's what I would do: I would try a regular kneaded dough, not a, a no knead, which you know sits in the Dutch oven. You bake it off. I've done that, or the other method, the stretch method. I would put it in a stand mixer if you have one, or do it by hand, and do a regular mm-hmm. knead, and then go bake that off and see if that works. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would look for is, do you have enough liquid in the dough? Because it sounds like that may be a problem if it's too dense. Not enough liquid, you mean? Yeah, especially if it's a no-need, because the water is the critical part of a no-need recipe, and you may not have enough of it in there. The other thing I would try is upping the water content in the no-need dough. But I, I would just try a regular knead and see if that solves your problem. Sarah? Full disclosure, I've never made sourdough bread. That's way too much work for me. But I do make bread, and I've done it both the no-knead method, you know, with regular yeast, not sourdough. I've also done the regular old kneading version, you know. And it sounded to me like that might be where the problem is, that it doesn't have enough structure or it is overproofing, even though you said it doubles in bulk, maybe it's gone a little too far so that it's lost some of its air mm, before it be. ever even goes into the oven. That would be my suggestion is that maybe, like Chris said, go back to, instead of doing the no knead, do a more old-fashioned sourdough with kneading and make sure that you're not overproofing it. Okay, great. And um, do you need to like kind of let it rise for a couple hours after needing it? Because I know that yes. the sourdough tends to need to rise a lot longer than commercially. So I was, I just was wondering how long, especially to, if I'm worried about overproofing it. I get a container and I just mark it with a marker on the outside. And so just see that it's doubled. And the other thing you might want to think about is the temperature of the place it's rising. I mean, another problem with making bread or pizza dough is the ambient temperature. So you really want that dough to be in a fairly warm environment, like 72 to 75. If your kitchen is really cool, it could take a lot longer for that dough to rise. Gotcha. Thank you so much. I really appreciate yeah. it. All right. Take care. Thanks, so. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, give us a call. Our number is 
855-426-9843. One more time, that number is 855-426-9843 or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Karen Betts from Phoenix, Arizona. How can we help you? I have a question regarding olive oil and why we can use olive oil to cook in a high heat oven, like say 425, 425 degrees, but we can't use it on the stovetop. We have to use like a higher smoke point oil. Very tricky question. And an excellent question, I might add. First of all, regular like refined olive oil actually has a pretty high smoke point of like 450. So, you know, extra virgin Evo olive oil is probably around 400 or so. Like a light olive oil or non-extra virgin olive oil is 450. So that would be okay. The problem with that is when you heat olive oil, you lose a lot of the volatiles, right? So a really Mm -hmm. premium olive oil really should never be heated. It would be used as a drizzle or in a salad dressing. So I would never use quality, high-quality olive oil and roasting vegetables or whatever, I would just use grapeseed oil or whatever, sunflower oil. It's not going to really matter. But if you want to buy a less expensive refined olive oil for cooking, that's fine. And the smoke point will be 450 You might want to keep an expensive bottle of olive oil for drizzling and salad dressings, etc., and a less expensive, more refined oil for cooking, even high-heat roasting. Or you could use some other oil. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That makes, that kind of makes sense. I didn't realize that the temperature was, was that high of a smoke point, but yeah, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Okay. Yeah. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Alicia in Asheville, and I have a tip for all you garlic lovers out there. I like to cook up a bunch of garlic in some butter and olive oil, and then add a little salt, pepper, and fresh parsley. And then I toss all of that in a jar in the fridge, and when it firms up, it turns into a beautifully spreadable garlicky paste that goes great on a slice of French bread to make some quick garlic bread. Or you can just pop a little spoonful of that paste right into a soup or stew that you're making or even mac and cheese. Basically, you name it, that garlicky paste will make it better. Happy cooking. I hope you enjoy my tip. By the way, if you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's regular contributor, Bianca Bosker. Bianca, what's uh, on your mind this week? Well, Chris, this week I was hoping to speak with you about the food of futures past. So what did people 50, 80, 100 years ago think that we'd be eating now? First, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you have any ideas what past futurists predicted for our 21st century dinner tables? Well, I think a lot of them were talking about sort of the horn and heart art gone wild, right? Where food came out of machines in the kitchen, you press a button, it was all automated, and there wasn't much much cooking going on. Because I think what people did not want to do was to spend seven hours a day of cooking. So in the old magazines that I've seen, I think it was very much like Lost in Space or something. That's what I've seen. It didn't seem very appealing. Well, I would say that, yeah, some of them, even by today's standards, do still sound a little sci-fi. So uh, plus-sized produce, for example. In 1900, Mm. the Ladies' Home Journal predicted that by now we'd be eating peas the size of beets, raspberries as big as apples. I don't even know how Mm. big the apples would be. Um, There's other things that may have sound far-fetched that I have to say actually seem pretty spot-on. So The author of a 1930 book called The World in 2030 predicted that we'd all be eating lab-grown meat, which isn't too far off. But there were two kind of predictions that came up over and over again. One of them was that by now we'd be a lot more generous with what we defined as food. Because of food shortages due to population growth, today's typical dinner might include butter made from kerosene, 
plankton, powdered grass, algae, mm. and a far more diverse source of protein that would include insects, reptiles, and rodents. Um, there was a, a menu I came across from 1978 for the year 2000 that included sautéed mealworms followed by winged bean soup, science soy bread, and Lake Chad algae. One book argued that we'd be basically by now sourcing all of our food from scientists and not farmers. Um, it was high time, the authors argued, to see natural food for what it is, a poorly assorted mixture of chemicals containing a large amount of indigestible materials and a certain proportion of materials injurious to our health. Uh, I was really taken aback by a 1950 Popular Mechanics article on life in the year 2000, which cheered that among the miracles you'll see, food made from sawdust, candy made from discarded table linens and rayon underwear. Yum. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, the 50s and 60s, you know, population growth was the big topic. So there was a lot of discussion about eating insects and other things uh, because that's how people were going to feed the world. Little did they know that modern agriculture would be exported around the world and not solve the problem but ameliorate it to a large extent. Uh, but the one you mentioned was so interesting was that natural foods were – inherently unhealthy, whereas scientific lab-grown foods would be designed to be better for health. We all go through this process, society does, of science is going to save us, and then science is going to kill us. You know, it just, it just flips back and forth in terms of what we eat, right? Right. So I want to get to the second big category of food prediction. And I thought it was interesting that this has basically been a constant that comes up almost every decade since uh, the turn of the 20th century. And that is the dream of no more cooking. So by now, the experts prophesied, cooking would be obsolete. Uh, someone in 1900 predicted it would be an extravagance. In 1950, they thought it would be an art that is only a memory in the minds of old people. Our meals were supposed to be pretty much automatic. You'd put dinner on the table by pushing a button or turning a dial and waiting for this conveyor belt to deliver whatever a machine in the kitchen probably defrosted, assembled, cooked. Even the dishes would be molded on the spot. I also came across a lot of these prophecies about, by now, all of our meals would be in pill form. Right. There was uh, in 1893, a suffragette who predicted that by 1993, so a little ways ago, a little pellet could furnish a man with subsistence for days, and thus the problems of cooks and cooking will be solved. There was also a year 2000-themed dinner party held in 1944. Uh, involved a tutti-frutti pill followed by a brown pill in lieu of an entree and a chocolate pill for dessert, which was all followed by good old-fashioned sandwiches. It apparently wasn't filling enough, I guess. And I think it's interesting looking back on it. You know, we do have our frozen food. We have TV dinners. We have food delivery that you can get with a few clicks. But I'm still cooking yeah, but it does have roots in history that make sense. In the 1880s, you know, the, the number was seven hours a day just cooking with a coal stove, which is what they were using mostly, or uh, wood stove. Um, it really was a burden, right? Uh, and so I think that's where this whole thing got started with the modern food companies, et cetera. Obviously, it went too far, and they forgot about the fact that, A, cooking's a good thing to do. It's fun, and it's also good for family and community. It's also healthy. But th there was a good reason for that because women were slaves to the stove and their life was rather unpleasant in the last half of the 19th century. So I get how it got started. It just it didn't end up where we wanted to go. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's interesting the extent to which cooking is – a chore, but also a social ritual, right? I mean, at least for me, you know, I think that as we've gotten to spend so much time with technology, right, all the time that we spend on screens, I find myself looking forward not to hours necessarily of the analog experience of cooking, but to some of that analog experience of cooking. Well, I think the takeaway has to be under no circumstances predict the future and if you do, make sure it's a future that occurs long after you're dead because you're going to be wrong. It just never works out, right? Well, the experts think, like in the past, that our definition of delicious could change, right? More fish, more algae, lab-grown meat, more bugs. 
I think it's interesting how adventurous, at least in theory, people seem willing to be with our appetites. But I do wonder whether cooking is a little bit harder to give up than we realize. I at least could imagine a world in which the ingredients might change, but the ritual of preparing them, maybe that stays the same. Well, I have some advice. Just worry about what's for dinner today. Don't worry about what's for dinner 15 years from now. (laughs) Bianca, thank you so much. Uh, The future of food, who knows? Thanks. Thank you. That was journalist Bianca Bosker. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or order our latest cookbook, Tuesday Night's Mediterranean. You can find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producers, Sarah Clapp and Jason Tereski. Production assistant, Amelia McGuire. Intern, Emily Kunkel. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloth. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.